Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. In this episode, we're discussing SST 189, the confession album by The Last. It's our first full length. It's our first anything by The Last on the show, but we've mentioned them a ton of times, of course, and really looking forward to getting into them for the first time here. And we've got a special guest. Yeah, Joe Nolte's on the show. Pretty much the best person you could have on the show, I would say. This is really, you know, Joe's vision, mm -hmm. This the band, the last. And to hear it right from himself is fantastic. Uh, just some great songs. You know, I listened to kind of all of the last's recordings in order this week. And then, of course, listened to this record a number of times. Um, but man, such catchy songs yeah. like there's so many songs that are just going in my head all week long and lots of venom in the lyrics oh, which yeah. is like catchy songs with venomous lyrics great combo yeah i did the same thing i always do that when we have a especially if it's a new band we haven't talked about before i i listen to everything up to you know where we're talking about so yeah i've ah. been i've been living in the land of the last all week and just loving it yeah no kidding man all right why don't you hit us with some spiels first okay ryan rapid fire here maybe uh i this is a recommend for you a rock doc apple tv's velvet underground documentary oh yeah well dude i don't have apple tv yeah well i don't know you could probably <laughs> buy it on itunes or something or yeah, rent probably. it on itunes Another yeah, yeah. one, like the Sparks documentary, made by a big-name film, filmmaker, Todd Haynes. Uh, he made some movies like Velvet Goldmine, I'm Not yeah. There, the Bob Dylan movie. and Everyone loves this Velvet Underground one. Everyone's raving about it, hey? So the thing for me is I know the Velvet story well, so it's hard for me to tell, but I feel like it kind of assumes that you know the story, maybe. Mm. Okay. Uh, lots of great footage. John Cale and Mo Tucker participated, and they they're in it a lot. They use vo voiceovers for Lou Sterling Morrison, Doug Ewell, Nico. Uh, great interviews with people like Danny Fields. Amazing interview segments with superfan Jonathan Richman. Oh yeah, yeah. I think he says he saw them like eighty five times. <laughs> that, like they played Boston a ton. Um, yeah, well, they that's that's the modern lovers, right? They wanted to be the Velvets. That's that first self-titled modern lovers record and it's interesting because it'll come up on this release with the last yeah yeah lots of great footage uh from the factory some of andy warhol's superstars get interviewed the movie itself is avant-garde and arty it's two plus hours i loved it though yeah oh i know i'll love it when i finally find out how to watch it i'll be honest though i've always been a bigger fan of lou reed solo than the velvet underground yeah yeah, I like both equally. I guess I would say that there are just some Lou Reed records that I like more than most Velvet Underground records. I guess that's what I would say, but I kind of like them both equally. There's some later period, especially the 80s Lou Reed stuff that is just kind of, it's under so much 80s production goop that it's yeah. hard to listen to sometimes. For sure, but there's good stuff in there too if you if you dig yeah, around. Yeah. But um yeah, I mean, I generally even prefer Lou's interpretations of Velvet songs. Like, mm. if I was going to listen to the Velvet Underground, I'd probably just listen to a Greatest Hits comp or something. 
Oh, no way. In air quotes, greatest hits. Okay, yeah. Ryan, uh, here's a book recommend, but it's not for you. Maybe, I don't know. You you like all things music, not necessarily stuff that you're personally into. So you might like this because it's really good. Mm-hmm. Brian Wheat of the band Tesla has a book out called Son of a Milkman. Now, I love Tesla, always have, always will. They kind of get unfairly lumped in with hair metal. They are of that era, but they've always been closer to 70s rock like Aerosmith or Bad Company. They were more like contemporaries to the Black Crows, I would say, for me anyways. Tesla, really? Yeah. I love this book. Great insight into the formation of Tesla, the writing and recording of the albums, the dysfunction, the breakups, uh, his own struggles with mental health, uh, which he's very open about. I bought the audiobook version, which he reads himself. He's super honest, heartfelt, hilarious. I just love the book. Cool. Yeah, well, any good rock doc or any good rock book will stand up, uh, you know, and it's kind of agnostic when it comes to genre, right? If it's yeah. good, it's good. I, I get that. I, I definitely tend not to seek out books of that genre, but yeah. I'll take the recommend. And it's called Son of a Milkman because he's literally his mom had an affair with the milkman. <laughs> well, that's, you know what? Like that already sounds pretty good. Yeah. Ryan podcast pal, Jim Ruland has a weekly newsletter called message from the underground. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim, of course, is a friend of the show. Co-wrote my damage with Keith Morris. Do what you want with bad religion. He bad writes, religion. writes for razor cake and more. Uh, and, his forthcoming book, Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records, is up for pre-sale now. I pre-ordered that so fast, there was a trail of flames behind my return button on my laptop. Yeah, same. Now, I'm not going to read all of this because I don't want to spoil it, and everyone should head over to jimruland.net and subscribe to his newsletter and kick the guy some money, too, for crying out loud while you're at it, and also pre-order his book. But last week, he had a great piece on the later era gin project with mike valeli good for you kind of in defense of the project where you know wherever you stand on that stuff it's a great read this past week he had a piece on screaming trees invisible lantern what yeah so good timing yeah much of it centered around uh, mark lanigan's unfortunate dismissal of that That era era. of, of the band in his book Jim does mention that he interviewed Lanigan for his book, so hopefully he corrects some of that stuff. Ah, uh, cool. So here's a portion of what Jim says in, in his uh, newsletter. The main takeaway from Invisible Lantern is that Gary Lee Connor is just a ripping good guitar player. Riffs, hooks, melodies, he can do it all. He knows what made 60s garage rock great. Lanigan knocks these songs as being derivative of that era, but what I think he means is that he felt it was passe to be playing that kind of music in the mid-80s. On that count, I think Lanigan was wrong. Mm-hmm. Screaming Trees, along with other SST acts Das Domin and Dinosaur, ah. were ahead of their time, playing loud, fast guitar rock to audiences who mostly weren't ready for it. Nice shout-out to Das Domin there, by the way. Next week, man. Yeah, totally. Hey, I've got a Jim Rulin tie-in in my spiels. Wow. No fooling, no okay. fooling. Hey, and Ryan, people keep sending us links. Like, have you heard about this book to us? <laughs> which, which this one? The Jim Ruland book. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I pre-ordered it. No, I, yeah, we're in it, Ryan. 
We're in the book. So they say. Yeah. Okay, last one, Ryan. This is a recommend for you and me from podcast pal Ken De La Cruz. Now, Ken has great taste in music. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He made this a few weeks back, and I just got it in the mail. It's this. It's called The Boot Heels, 1988, The Original Demos. Came out this year on Omnivore Recordings. L.A. band, it's Toby Miller on guitar, Aaron Brooks on drums, and then Jacob Dylan, son of Bob, and future oh. band leader of the Wallflowers, yeah. and bassist songwriter Luther Russell. Now, Luther could really write a song, but the band at this time were all teenagers. Jacob was still in high school, and they were only together for a very short period of time. They played a grand total of two shows, one at the Troubadour and one at Madame Wong's West, both on off nights. So these are essentially rehearsal tapes, uh, but they suit the music perfectly, the recordings. The album comes with an oral history uh, based on new interviews with all four members, and I'll just read from it. Here's Toby Miller. The three of us were listening to exactly the same music in heavy doses. The Replacements, The Jam, Big Star, Elvis Costello, and The Clash. The boot heel sound can be attributed to the fact that we were all steeped in the same musical diet at the same time. Here's Luther. I was a big fan of Dinosaur Jr., Husker Du, Minutemen, and R.E.M., but when I heard the replacements, something really clicked in me. Ryan, you need to buy this now, and big time kudos to Omnivore for releasing this and for Ken for making the perfect recommend. Yeah. Okay. Well, it definitely sounds up my alley. I, I've got a gaping open wound when it comes to the replacements right now, because yet again, when I pre pre ordered, pre ordered the deluxe reissue package from Rhino Warner, everyone in the world, it seems has got theirs and I don't even have a shipment notification. And so I'm going to get mine, you know, 2022, if I'm lucky. That's Canada, man. Hey, Ryan. Well, you know what? You're going to shit Twinkies when you hear this Boot Heels record. So, <laughs> Hey, are there any corkers on it? <laughs> <laughs> I sure hope there's a corker or two on there. Oh, there's several. Excellent. Well, I, hey, I appreciate the recommend. Thanks, Ken. That's it for me, Ryan. What do you have? All right. Micro spiels. First, Brant. I don't know who's on first, but... Watts on bass? You got that right. The band is called Three Layer Cake. Do you know this band? Sounds familiar. Three Layer Cake. The record is Stovetop. This is a record that Watt has pulled together with two other guys, uh, percussionist Mike Pride and guitarist banjoist Brandon Seabrook. This is a punk free jazz no wave dub record where mike pride was on watts podcast and they struck up kind of a relationship and after the fact they said hey let's do something and so they did when you read up on the record mike watts says you know the internet you know instead of spreading lies is also good for trading files and Mm -hmm. it's called three layer cake because you know one band member would start with a track send it to the other guy and then the other guy and you've got three layers drum bass guitar not always in that order in terms of how the tracks were built anyways uh, you can order that on Bandcamp. 
three, Layer Cake, another release from Mike Watt and others that he's collaborating with that I want to dig more deeply into as well. Mike Pride, Brandon Seabrook. Mm -hmm. That's Microspiel 1. Microspiel 2, Literature, Jim Ruland tie-in. Ready? Yeah. A new book called Forbidden Beat, Perspectives on Punk Drumming by S.W. Lawden. You can pre-order that right now. Cover art by Brian Walsby. S.W. Lawden has written two books, at least two, maybe even three, on Power Pop. I've not read any of them, but I'm looking forward to this one. It seems as though this this S.W. Lawden is kind of like the editor of a number of articles on the history of punk drumming, lists, essays, interviews it has contributions from here we go joey shithead dh pelegro pete finestone jim ruland john worster Lori barbero joey cape trey cool stephen mcdonald rat scabies it goes on and on and on uh forbidden beat perspectives on punk drumming pre-order that one it does beg the question though where is the punk bass player book yeah where is that where's that one good question I just ever since you mentioned Joe Keithley's name, it got me thinking like he's probably talking about, you know, Dimwit and Chuck Biscuits. Chuck. Dimwit and Chuck since for sure. Dimwit's no longer with us, and Chuck is apparently in the witness protection program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, anyways, I think that that's going to be a great one to uh, to check out. All right, podcast shout out. Nice. Brand. Ready? Yep. Uh, the Vinyl Guide had two episodes with Joe Carducci. Um, Those were cool to listen to. Great to hear from Joe on um, his books, his days at SST. Definitely worth sitting down and listening to both of those episodes back to back. Always love hearing from Joe Carducci. Check that one out. New book, hey? Yeah, he's got a new book on Westerns. Because he has, you know, this, this music record business life. But also this film life um, in, in terms of, you know, reviewing and uh, writing about film. And then also this one in particular on Westerns. And then finally, Brandt, fourth spiel for this micro spiel fest here. Uh, just want to mention a new Kickstarter campaign by the band Moving Targets. The new record is In the Dust. It's going to be recorded by Jay Robbins starting in the new year. Go and support Ken Chambers and his new crew. His last two records, Wires and Humbucker, have been awesome, carrying on the the Moving Targets legacy. Go and support Ken. Moving Targets in the dust. Do it. All right. That's it, man. Right on. You want to get into this record, the last? Definitely. History Lesson, Part 1. All right, Brant. So like I said, we have mentioned the last on the show a number of times and and specifically on the episodes with respect to the descendants. The last was a big influence on the descendants, um, especially Bill Stevenson. Uh, Dave Nolte arguably kind of started the descendants with Frank Nevada. I will talk about Dave in a, in a bit here. There are some direct connections with the Descendants on this release as well, which we'll get into. I'll just mention a few of the sources, though, for this history lesson, and then I got a quick spiel to kind of set the stage, okay? All right. So some great 
sources for information on the last other than you know just the google machine wikipedia discogs blah 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 is the the liner notes for the 2003 reissue of the great la explosion album on bomp great liner notes there the 2020 reissue of the look again record on backlash records great liner notes there also the laexplosion.com website and then the DanNolte.com website has a year-by-year history of the band. It's quite sparse, but it does help you connect the dots in terms of, you know, who went where, when did a recording come out, that type of stuff. Now, let me, though, read a spiel for you from this book, The Knights of Fuzz. Ah, uh, yep. The Knights of Fuzz, The New Garage and Psychedelic Music Explosion, this 500 plus page tome has been you know one of my go-to's for a long time here timothy gasson this is on garage nation so of, listen. of the amazing band the marshmallow overcoat ryan exactly exactly yeah. so i mean you know that tim's got some street cred when he's doing a 500 page tome on garage rock revival yeah but here here's the spiel on the last to set the stage here okay one should not underestimate the worth of a pioneer. The first in any given attempt is usually forgotten as the more successful followers gain success, and such is the case with the last. They remembered the value of melody and lyrical power at a time when many were indulging in the fury of 70s punk. They acknowledged the classics of pop history, then took what they needed to form a new sound in their own image. The time was the late 1970s. The place was Los Angeles. The band was the last. The story you are about to read is mostly true. Bomp released several last 45s into the new wave miasma, but it was their debut LP which caused the real sparks to fly. LA Explosion is just that, a fury of pop guitars and ideas and frantic teenage voices. It's 15 blistering tracks... 14 originals, journeyed from mercy pop to guitar ballads to angry rough rock, all in the course of a few songs. Their lead-off anthem, She Don't Know Why I'm Here, is one of the most stunning independent label efforts ever, with its searing guitar hook, emotional vocals, and identifiable group intensity. It's the birds meets the seeds, with a late 70s power pop sensibility thrown in, and it captures the era like a time capsule. Several more records would appear, but the last were never given their due as pioneers of 1980s garage pop. They were the first and were the least lucky enough to leave several documents of their pioneering efforts. Totally true. Yep. So before we get into the interview with Joe too, let's do a little history lesson to bring us up to this confession record, okay? Yeah. So, The Last, formed in October of 1976 in a Hermosa Beach garage. At that time, it was main man Joe Nolte, guitar on vocals, Mike Nolte on backing vocals, Dave Harbison on bass, Danny Winter guitar, Sean Doherty keyboards, Mike Clark on drums. Joe was fueled by the lack of, in his view, good rock and roll. He was inspired by 50s rock and roll, then 60s psych punk, and then the New York scene and Nuggets comp. Inspired by bands like The Modern Lovers, The Dictators, The Last started to take shape. Also inspired by 
eventually Sex Pistols, Buzzcocks, and The Clash, but still keeping that West Coast surf garage undertone that would forever distinguish the sound of the last, for me at least. This is really Joe Nolte's own take on punk rock. It is kind of my take on the formation of the last one. I read up on it and listen to these records. In uh, September of 1977, they released the classic, you know, landmark single, the She Don't Know Why I'm Here single, backed with The Bombing of London. At that time, it's Mike Clark on drums, Danny Winter guitar, Mike Nolte on vocals, Vetus Matari has now joined on keys, and Vetus, of course, went on to Trotsky Icepick, Danny and the Darnobs, most recently Petrified Max, but we've seen Vetus before as a producer on some of these SST records that we've covered on the show. David Nolte was on percussion at that time, Joe Nolte, lead guitar and vocals, and Dave Harbison on bass. This was originally released on Backlash Records, but re-released on Bump, and you can really tell where the early Descendants were inspired by this band and this single in particular. When you listen to those Descendants Mm -hmm. tracks like Ride the Wild and whatnot, this is that Southern California jangly punk pop that The Last really created. Fast forward to 1978, there is the... Uh, two versions, I guess, of the Every Summer Day 7-inch came out, one backed by Hitler's brother on Backlash, the other backed by Slave Driver on Bomp. Then in 1978 as well, a 7-inch LA explosion backed with Hitler's brother on Backlash. Finally, we arrive at this lineup in 1978 and the first full-length, the LA explosion record on Bomp Records that really galvanized the last sound and lineup for a period of time. We've got now Joe Nolte and Mike Nolte, but Dave Nolte has joined on bass. And again, Dave Nolte is is kind of the guy that started the Descendants with Frank Novetta, but now he's in the last because Dave Harbison has left. Jack Reynolds on drums now really again defined the last sound on this first full length. Vetus Matari's fully in the band here on keys and flute and uh, just a landmark pop-punk record, L.A. Explosion. And it really inspired the Paisley Underground, you know. Yeah. Um, It came out in August 15th of 1979, and then when you see what follows, it really is a huge kind of watershed moment for this type of music in California. In 1979, there was also the Bebop Alula 12-inch, and uh, this kind of feeling, 12-inch. Jack quit in 79, and they got John Frank on drums. Then they go to record this album, Look Again, during the first half of 1980. The lineup here is the three Nolte's, Vetus, John Frank. At least at that point, suffering from less-than-ideal production, they were unable to find a record deal, and that record sat unreleased you know without an official release until last year in 2020 40 years later and it's a great record released on backlash now people still had copies of it though Um, not many were out there when you read the liner notes in this look again uh, re-release or official release i guess there's a comment in there from bill stevenson about how he had like an unofficial promo copy that they were using to shop around and get labels Um, he's like he listened to it to death and immensely influential to bill and what would become the descendants yeah i've I've had a bootleg of it for years 
Like a physical one? No, no. Oh, okay. It's, it makes the rounds. Oh, for sure. Because, I mean, there's something in the order of, when I read the, the Flex book, it sounds like there's somewhere in the order of 60 to 100 actual physical copies. That's it yeah. on the planet. Of that version, it's a it's a different mix. It was missing a track as well from what's on the re-release. But, uh, yeah, I had only heard it, like, just in, like, YouTube videos, you know? Yeah. Very cool to have that out now. Now, in 1982... They also released the Up in the Air 7-inch on Wharf Rat Gramophone and the Fade to Black 12-inch on Bomp. In the fall of 1980, though, without a a record deal, the band kind of started to stall out. Mike is out of the band. In 1981, they're trying to find a singer. Apparently, Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles wanted to audition. Dave Roback auditioned this is uh you would know this brand of course um rain parade that's uh, the dave roback there but also opal and mazzy star yeah uh, steve Wynn from dream syndicate apparently also tried out for vocals but couldn't find a good fit um that kind of sounded like mike fast forward to 1982 they're re- recording now the painting smiles on a dead man lp the band is vetus joe nolte john frank on drums and then john Rosewall on bass and vocals. Dave Nolte also gets some bass credit on that record. And Steve Andrews on guitar. Came out on Backlash and Lolita only in France. So it's not a very common record, Painting Smiles on a Dead Man. You'll hear from Joe in the interview how he's kind of, it sounds like he kind of has mixed feelings about it, but I still think it's a solid record. I listened to it. yeah, Yeah, I listened to it a few times this week. The strength of those songs really carry that album forward in my view yeah i i'm not sure how much of an album album it was ever intended to be i kind of get the impression that it's just a collection of demos or odds and ends etc yeah i would say odds and ends from various sessions between 1980 and 82 for sure it's worth it's worth tracking down though for sure. And then we get to 1983, and for a few years after, at least, this band was really not on a roll, I guess, is what you is how I would put it. Lots of different members, sporadic activity. Uh, John left and went on to Trotsky Ice Pick. They had a number of different guys. Hunter Crawley on drums, who went on to the Leaving Trains. Dennis Duck from Human Hands. Uh, Vetus eventually leaves. Um, the both brothers came back um, for a period in 84, and then at the end of 85, the band, the last, they're basically done. Um, in 1986, the band, the last, didn't exist. Brett Gurwitz tried to get Joe to do a solo record. Joe didn't end up taking him up on that offer. You'll hear about that in the interview as well. But near the end of 86, Joe and Mike reconnect. And in 87, they started up a band again, ended up calling it The Last. And on this record, we've got Luke Lones on guitar and vocals, Larry Mankey on bass and vocals, and then Dave Nasworthy on drums, future drummer of Chemical People and Down By Law. Mm -hmm. They got a deal with SST. They recorded Confession in February of 1988 with Bill Stevenson and Stephen Edgerton. And we'll get to this more in the interview. But before we do, just to note that we're also going to see the last four more times on the show. Four we're more? Gonna, four more times. We're going to see them on the Awakening LP, SST 230, and the Gin and Innuendos LP, SST 323, but also on the Duck and Cover comp, 
SST-263, and the SST Acoustic album, SST-276. Nice. So four more times. We're going to get the last on the show. Really look forward to that. But if we want to talk about the entire recorded output, we should also mention that in 2013, the last reformed, it was Joe and Mike at the time with Bill and Carl from the Descendants on the rhythm section. This is their Danger LP on End Sounds 2013. Awesome record. Everyone should track that one down where they actually re-record some of the tracks from, at that point, the unreleased Look Again album. So it's a very cool record. And I mean, you know that if Carl and Bill are on it, it's going to be great regardless, just like the Lemonheads record, right? Like, yeah. um, But Bill and Carl with Joe's songwriting and Joe and Mike on vocals, a killer album. You got to get Danger. Yep. So that's it, man. Um, anything else that you want to mention before we toss it over to the interview? Yeah, uh, I'll just take us right up to speed on this confession record because I got from Joe a couple of newsletters from this era that they mailed out. The ah. last newsletter. So here's from January of 88. They say, yes, the rumors are true. We are going to put out a long playing record this spring that you can actually go to a store and buy. <laughs> it appears as if it's going to come out on SST, which would make a lot of sense because we've been talking about doing something together for longer than some of us have been alive, or so it seems. The songs are mostly brand new, which is something of a surprise to us, as a few of them had not actually been written yet as of our last show at Fender's. But we wrote them and we're stuck with them, so we're going to record them and put them out. And then they mention an upcoming show at Madame Wong's with Wednesday Week, a great band with David Nolte. Mm -hmm. uh, they have an album on Enigma called What We Had from 1986, which is pretty easy to find and pretty great, uh, if you ever see that. And then the next one, the next newsletter that is from uh, April of 88. And they say, hello, sorry for the delay, but we've been sort of preoccupied lately. We have actually completed the album. It's coming out on SST in May, and it's going to be called Confession. And it's turned out to be possibly the most refreshing two weeks we've ever squandered in a recording studio. We played most of the instruments live, including even one or two vocals. Bill Stevenson of Descendants, all infamy, did the producing, and let us do all the horrible things they don't let you do in studios anymore. Then he talks about an upcoming gig at the Music Machine with Angst, Blackbirds, which I'm wondering if it's not actually Blackbird, Tony and Chip Kinman's band. Yeah. And Trotsky Ice Pick. Wow. And then they say, which features a guy named Vetus that you may have heard of. Gosh, a battle of the bands. Right on. So pretty interesting that, you know, how quick this all went down. They reform very quickly, record in February, and the record, according to this newsletter anyways, is coming out in May already. May. Yeah. They definitely didn't have the same type of pressing delays that we have now. Yeah. <laughs> you want to throw it over to Joe? Yeah, man. We're joined on the podcast today by Joe Nolte. Joe, thanks for being on the show. Sure, my pleasure. <laughs> All right, we're talking about the SST era of the last today, but Joe, I want to go back to kind of your childhood, growing up with David and Mike. Now, was there more brothers and sisters, or was it the three of you? 
Oh yeah, there were five boys in all. Oh. Um, my, I, I was the oldest, and then there was my brother John, mm-hmm. who narrowly escaped being in the band. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then Mike, then David, and then the littlest brother is uh, Dan, who ended up doing our website many years later. Mm. Yeah, John, actually, when we, um, at the end of 77, we were losing our bass player, and um, I sort of convinced John to join because he'd just gotten the bass. And um, John, I guess, decided otherwise because he ended up giving Brother David the bass for Christmas. Uh, gotcha. <laughs> so in a sense, Dave, Dave got roped into the end of the band as a Christmas present. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah there, were, there were five of us. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, I think John started playing music just before I did. He started taking lessons, violin lessons, I think. And then... Um, I was able to get in, and of course I wanted, um, I had previously, as a kid, I wanted to be Walt Disney, you know, <laughs> yeah. make all my own movies and have my own theme park and stuff, but um, as the uh, 60s became the mid-60s, I had decided I really wanted to be the Beatles, mm-hmm. and I pretty much stayed with that all my life. <laughs> it hasn't <laughs> happened yet, though. <laughs> well, closer than many. Now, uh, so you're the... You're the older sibling, so you're. I'm assuming you're kind of the tastemaker in the household. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I do get. I have gotten pushback, but I've. Um, yeah, but you know, in terms of the fact, yeah, yeah. I rec- I imagine so. Mm-hmm. Like, how old would you have been in the late '60s? Were you in high? Like, I'm just trying to determine, you know, when you graduated. I'm going to tell you how old I really am. Uh, no, I actually became a teenager in mid-69. Okay. July 69, I got my first electric guitar, and, you know, so I can say I was, <laughs> for a brief moment in time, a 60s teenager. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I spent, yeah, yeah, I was um, raised on, you know, I, you know well, partly... Parents at home, um, the music would be classical or um, sort of modern show tunes. You know, mm-hmm. modern being, you know, Sound of Music, uh, King and I, and um, Music Man. Great stuff. Um, but mom, and then later the school buses in elementary school would always have AM radio going on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I, I got to hear, you know, like all the best music ever made at the time it was made, you know, that was pretty something. But also, typically, I'm all through grade school, raised by nuns. Um, and, you know, I mean, nuns in the 60s are kind of like synonymous with uh, folk music, you know, it's just right. kind of <laughs> the singing nun and everything. But I mean, if I had a dime for every time I've heard uh, the first Peter, Paul, and Mary album, you know, which. Right. Is still great, but yeah, I mean, you know, folk was folk was a big thing, but um, sort of, you know, mid '60s uh, British invasion and garage and folk rock was just it. Um, yeah, I get that stayed with me. Yeah, the, I guess that, that's what that's what I'm trying to, in a roundabout way, ask you is like, so you're you're pretty much a teenager in the early to mid '70s. So were you mm-hmm. were you listening to you know? R- rock music of the day or were you already going backwards 
Oh, I wanted to listen to, I mean, you know, the idea as the 60s ended, the idea was, oh, good, thank God this horrible decade's over. The 70s should be just great. We're we're starting out with Woodstock, you know, what (laughs) could go wrong? You know, I I really, I was, um, um, I, I, my tastes evolved throughout the late 60s, and I was, I was, I was very into this sort of um, the uh, the original alternate alternative music, which is the uh, sort of FM underground stuff of the late '60s, as pretty much epitomized in the Woodstock movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, loved that stuff and thought everything was just going to get better and better. You know, it was a pretty remarkable time where, you know, not genres, you know, new 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 rock hybrid genres were being explored and. Um, it was getting to the point where some bands were like creating, were becoming their own genres, and some bands were like inventing a new genre with each album. You know, especially during like '68 through '71 is like pretty much the golden era, mm-hmm. and it was it was fantastic. And um, <laughs> along comes '72. Uh, basically, the problem at Woodstock is actually partly to blame. You know, because that brings in 16-track recording, which is wonderful. Gee, you can record, you know, some, some idiot unfortunately figured out that you could record all the instruments separately. And then think about how clean you can make them sound. Right. And it's, you know, so that's the death knell of playing music together as a band in the studio. Mm-hmm. And all those wonderful, happy accidents that made for great records that had, you know, been the norm all through you know, the previous, like, 20 years, the the 50s and 60s and everything, all that wonderful accidental swing that just made early country rhythm and blues and, of course, rock and roll so great, it was about to be shot dead right. <laughs> in favor of really nice-sounding bass and drums. My God, you could mic the drums with, you know... I'm surprised they didn't go with playing each drum individually, you know, and it's, <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure did. what happened. <laughs> I'd say yes, some yeah. did. Yeah. And it's now, now I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of good sound, but it's like basically what happens and it's, you know, what happens is by uh, 72, 73, uh, you've got music that's being used to show off how cool your new sound system is. Right. And that's the, the sonic aspects have become much more, you know, important than like, you know, what's actually, you know, than, than the music itself, which is obvious. Um, because everything, because the music's being geared to sort of like bring out all these groovy sounds and you end up you know, with music being written, you know, to sort of as to, 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 as a sound demo, and it's just not anywhere near what it was. Uh, that's one problem. The other problem is that um, these bands, these formerly great bands, are doing this, and they are realizing that the crappier the songs are, the more people seem to like them. <laughs> The dumbing down, the the dumbing down of music, and so it's like, yeah, and practically every band, solo Beatles, I'm sorry, uh, Stones, I'm sorry, uh, Zappa, oh my God, the great Zappa reduced to potty jokes with Yellow Snow by '72, my <laughs> God, 
Uh, the Kinks. Oh, the Kinks, previously one of the greatest of the greats. Uh, you know, reduced to horrible, ugh, horrible <laughs> quasi-rock operas. Um, oh, God, who am, who am I missing? Um, no, nobody gets out alive in this one. But, uh, <laughs> the birds? <laughs> but, you know, it's like every... Well, there weren't really birds. I mean, they did a freaking reunion album in 73. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> they'd that's, that's, oh, God, what would have happened if they had not fired Crosby? <laughs> Lord. But, and, God, we're getting way far afield. But, um, but yeah, that was, uh, this is, this, this shade, this whole thing shaped me. That's why I'm even talking about it. Mm-hmm. Is it just, it was, and, and this is, what I'm I'm realizing, and I mean, it's not, you know, I haven't fully analyzed and, and hit upon all the exact reasons, but I know, you know, as of like mid to late 72, I know something has gone wrong. Yeah. This is not going to be the great decade, and in fact, everything is starting to suck. And, you know, it's like, I mean, the early 72 was great, you know, exile. Mm-hmm. Um you know, um, Exile, the Neil Young Harvest album, you know, there were good things then, but that was kind of about it. Yeah. Uh, the Eagles hit in mid, mid, mid 72 and they're kind of waving the flag of, <laughs> yeah. here comes music soft light. Rock. Yeah. Here comes soft. Yeah, rock. yeah, exactly. It's not really country. It's not really pop. It's not really rock, but it's kind of, yeah. you know, Enough of the flavoring of all three to fool y'all. Yeah. <laughs> Are you playing in bands at this point yourself? And oh hell yes! That's seventy yeah. two's year. I meet Vitus, who okay. is uh, my early uh, collaborator, and um, I'd been sort of like forming tentative bands and stuff. And I don't even want to get into the um, his. I've also been there. There's a documentary is going to be coming out in a couple of years. Oh yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, you're like. Of the bands of your era, you know, you're one of the the few bigger bands that <laughs> doesn't have a documentary yet. Yeah, it's, it's I'm 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 still surprised. Yeah, me we, too. Um, uh, <laughs> unlike unlike other bands from that era, we didn't sell any records. <laughs> There's still a story there, though, and that's the important. Oh thing. hell yes, yeah, hell yes. That's what I mean. You got. I had like, um, uh, I had like close to an album's worth of material before the first Ramones album hit. So mm-hmm. I was making, I was, I was, <laughs> I was making up my version of punk rock with, with, with little to go on right. <laughs> as would, which is kind of, I think the only way to do For it. For sure. Really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Back then, of course, Blondie and television and uh, talking heads were all considered punk rock. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, Different. <laughs> yeah. Now, did you meet Vetus in high school? Did you go to the same school? Yes. Yeah. Yes. We, uh, we went to Loyola High. Uh, Vetus had been in school in Germany, mm. and he had just uh, moved back to his old stomping grounds in West LA, and so he had transferred to uh, Loyola as a junior in um, September '72, and. Uh, I met him in French class, and I was, you know, I mean, I, I, I was good-naturedly well, uh, um, uh, I was a good-natured misbehavior, I guess. <laughs> I, I, liked, I, liked to, 
I like to think of myself. Right. <laughs> truth, truth be damned. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, anyway, Vitus appreciated my hijinks. We got to talking. Um, we were also the only two juniors in the class, uh, for whatever reason, and um, discovered we were both in bands, which is just like whoa. Mm-hmm. So we made, and I still somewhere have. The uh, French book, the uh, textbook from that year, which has on one of the pages a uh, 25-cent bet made between me and Vitus as to whose band gets uh, the first gets a recording contract first, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Okay. Uh, what, what clinched it for me is I found out that Vitus played flute, mm. and I was and um, let's see when it toll. You see, I liked passion play. I I toll. Really, until 74 or 75, um, you know, Toll Toll didn't really start getting bad. I I knew it was over for Toll when I saw the cover of Too Old to Rock and Roll, Too Young to Die. Oh, my God, no. (laughs) Ian Anderson doing a comic book cover. Okay, kill me. (laughs) But uh, Toll had been one of my favorite bands. But my fan, Vetus, of course, was much more influenced by Golden Earring, who were a great band um, and whose great music, uh, nobody in America has heard because it all came out in the 60s and didn't sell mm-hmm. here. But they were wonderful, wonderful band. And um, Vidus, anyway, so Vidus played flute, and I knew at that point I had to, you know, get him to at least, you know, guest with my band. <laughs> and of course, what happened was we ended up merging bands and with within the year. Quick, quickly fast forward to we we ended up merging kept a band um you know going through high school and a year beyond vetus ended up going to europe um i had wanted i wanted well i wanted to start a punk rock band before i you know knew i was going to have a punk rock band but it's uh i'd been looking for something new especially by 75 i was going nuts mm-hmm. and um by late 75 we you know there started to be news reports you know um in local zines about uh you know this new scene coming out of new york and they were even calling it punk and, uh, oh my god this is perfect you know i want to do this and I, I i figured i just wanted to get a band together and get it somehow get it to new york because i knew you know punk rock just sounded too cool I knew it would never get out of New York. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's just no hope for that. Um, Lord. And uh, uh, the um, bass, our bass player from high school, Dave Harbison, old good friend of Vetus's, um, he had just gotten back into town by uh, early 76. He became my co-conspirator, and, and uh, the original last prototype is really just me and dave harbison he played bass i played guitar we would just like i taught him all the songs and stuff and uh anyway that morphed into eventually becoming the last by october of 76 okay one of the most interesting things for me about the last and maybe this is just my perspective you can tell me if i'm wrong but you're one of the few bands that kind of was a part of that first wave of la punk rock but also played into that second wave, like was more of the hardcore bands. I get, well, you know, it's just, I'm stubborn. I, <laughs> I just, I, I, I wouldn't stop playing. <laughs> it's, uh, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, 
and at the same at the same time as, as we're you know yeah we're we're well we're part of the initial thing then we've you know then we kind of spearheaded the uh, South Bay scene mm-hmm. you know which is uh, kind of like the 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 precursor to the Orange County hardcore scene but right. it's uh you know like the church thing which is of course Black Flag Descendants et cetera et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's see, which, I mean, which era are you talking about? Like the um, early 90s, late 80s? Uh, I'm more talking about like the early 80s, you know, when, oh, okay. uh, you know, you get the, the first wave with bands like X and whoever you want to put in there, the Blasters, right. or etc. And then you kind of have that second wave where you start seeing bands like Red, Red Cross and Black Flag and the Circle Jerks and, and those kinds of bands. And you kind of, it seems like a lot of those bands are either one or the other. You're kind of both, if I'm making sense. That makes sense. See, we were the one, um, we were the one uh, band, for, uh, the, the, the one band from the, the Old Guard, I guess, that was in the South Bay. Mm-hmm. And specifically, I was living at the church. And that's where the tourists started practicing and decided to change their name to Red Cross. And that's, where Black Flag practiced with Keith Morris on vocals. And, of course, um, Greg Hudson was with Red Cross, so you've got the the nucleus of uh, Circle Jerks is there. They just don't know it. Right, um, right. And, and, and um, also practicing there, uh, of course, the, uh, the band that my brother David formed with Frank Nevada in 77, they called themselves the Descendants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, within a year, had discovered the pop sensibilities of Bill Stevenson and gotten him in, and et cetera. So maybe, <laughs> but uh, maybe more to do with geography, almost. Uh, it, it, it's uh, yeah, it's a lot. It, 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 it's a happy accident that all these bands right. are, you know, uh, in the South Bay, and since everybody hates us, everybody hates punk rockers. Uh, you know, in the, at the, at this time, um, you know, it, it, it was, it was a good survival tactic to band together right. as much as possible. Um, but yeah, so basically we were, um, when I moved into the church in 79, we were just starting to, to take off, you know, we were like, uh, we were at the top of this, at the top of the heap on the LA scene, uh, for a few months, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not that long, but um, um, but it, it was a lot of fun, um, and it was interesting because I would like go out and be a be a rock star. Say, look, there's there's our billboard on the Sunset Strip. And, like here we are, I see all these bands, and then I'd go home and sleep on a rat infested couch <laughs> in the basement of a church. Right. <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a happy accident, but I saw early on, I thought, you know, this is, this, this could be a scene, you know, mm-hmm. you have like an actual South Bay scene. And I would tell people they would invariably laugh at me, you know, and say, no, 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 no. <laughs> but, but it kind of did. <laughs> Last week on the show, I was talking to Mark Pickerel from the Screaming Trees and was, uh, here's, yeah. here's a question I asked him and I think it's, I could ask you the same question because they often got, you know, talked about as being a throwback to the 60s. And 
I, I, I guess I'm curious. <laughs> Which could be the kiss of death. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. sure. But I, you know, I asked him, like, did you feel a kinship later on with bands like The Liars, for example, and those kinds of bands? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, I, kind, of, kind of the, I, del- I, I, the I, deliberate I, throwback I... bands. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, when you say the liars, I'm, I moved to think of uh, Kipling. Mm. For east is east and west is west, right. and there the twain shall meet. Um, <laughs> it's a lot, you know. Um, a, a few of the bands that were bandied around the most in Trouser Press, uh, we certainly knew of a lot of them, and we just never heard. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of, of who there was. I mean, certainly, I was. Uh, I really liked the uh, Flame and Groovy's Shake Some Action album. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was really... That was pretty cool. I mainly for two songs, the title song and then um, 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 "I'll Cry Alone," which is it's like the second half suffers from you know the sort of like bad Beach Boy song fate of repeating the most boring part of the song over and over and over again. <laughs> you know, I mean, even the Ramones, they're. You know, the great, great Sheena is a punk rocker. The second half is all, well, she's a punk, punk, punk rocker. Yeah, we get it. We get it, guys. Go back to the verses. <laughs> but no, never the verses shall we see again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll Cry Alone suffers from that in the second half, but the first half is, is just like one of those brilliant one and a half minutes of of, of, of quasi-English of quasi, uh, wannabe music I've ever heard, you know? <laughs> it's just it's just got na 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 na. Anyway, but that is um so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean and obviously, you know, I mean the raspberries even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Try all Ken C C for that matter, you know. I mean I I know these are more mainstream and earlier examples, but um yeah, for me I would anybody that I heard about that was uh at all, you know, attempting to strip mine the sixties, uh I, I felt sort of a kinship with. I felt, okay, we're, you know, uh, because my uh, my declared feeling uh, by uh, 77, 78 was we are, was that something went wrong in spite of the fact that the end of the 60s, you know, alt era was, was pretty great to listen to. Clearly, music took kind of a wrong turn right around 66 to 67, which is, you know, 67 kind of eclipses the old garage band sensibilities. And it seemed like the wrong, the wrong bands might have made it, whereas the bands that should have made it, like the Stooges and the Velvets, um, MC5, et cetera, did not. Mm-hmm. And uh, so maybe, you know, maybe we kind of took a wrong turn and we need to go back, you know, back to... 66 for that matter and 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 start again and to you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and re-evolve that <laughs> was kind of that was my idea well, uh, i think kind of in a way it happened yeah all right i'm gonna fast forward a little bit through you know LA, la explosion look again which the reissue is phenomenal by the way and but I feel, ah, I feel like those eras are fairly well documented, especially with, you know, the great liner notes on the reissue, etc. Going up to Painting Smiles on a Dead Man from 83, what was the status of the last by this point? Were you an active oh, band? 
<laughs> execrable. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um, the la- yeah, basically, and I, I t- touched on this because, like, the documentary is actually pretty much, you know, the end is after the Look Again album mm. sort of failed to find a distributor, mm-hmm. and it was kind of like the death knell for for the real for the goods of it. For for the last as a real band, um, and basically, uh, we sort of. I mean, it's it's easy to stay on track when things are going okay, but when you know when things stop going okay, when um, you know we've been on sort of a roll, and um, the look again, the original mix of uh, the look again album was just really bad. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted it, and uh, we were suddenly faced with, you know, no follow-up record, and no momentum, and really, by the end of 1980, I realized that the band had pretty much had it, but there were people who had put a lot into it, so I kind of felt obligated to keep it going, mm-hmm. um, but it was no longer, it was, you know, non, no longer a driven band with a direction. Now... Everybody had their own idea what we should do in the future, since we had obviously failed. And uh, every idea was completely different from the others, and none of the ideas were good. Yeah. So we ended up being a sort of uh, becoming, we ended up have, starting to have meetings. We became a band who has meetings. If you're ever inclined to be in a band and you find a band and they have meetings, get the hell out as quick <laughs> as you can. <laughs> but, you know, it's just like we were, we, we became direct, a directionless sort of spinning, uh, <sighs> grotesque sort of amoeba-like thing that just kind of uh, didn't do anything. And so we put out a grotesque amoeba-like record <laughs> and it's basically just a comp, uh, you know, yeah, kind of a compilation of, what we consider to be the less offensive tracks that we put together over the past um, couple of years uh, in the wake of the failed look again. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's kind of like the best of the worst, I guess. Um, and the feeling was that really putting these records out and you know trying to present them in a good light was... Uh, pretty close to trying, you know, painting a smile on a dead man. <laughs> <laughs> hence the title. Hence, you know, I mean, there's some fun. There's 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 some fun stuff on that record. There's stuff I have heard enough for one lifetime on that record. Mm-hmm. <sighs> no backlash. I'm assuming that's that's you. That what? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think one of our managers ended up taking over the name, and at the time, I mean, I'm. I'm not a business guy, so I probably signed a lot of contracts just to practice writing my name, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> signed too many of the wrong ones. But, uh, yeah, Backlash uh, was was my original name for the production end of the band, you okay. know, for whatever purposes. Um, you know, for obvious reasons. You know, we're a Backlash to, you know, the horrible non-musical direction that pop music has taken over the past 10 years, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, the look again, would, would that have been on SST, do you suppose, if they would have had the, the capital at the time? Uh, no, because they wanted to put it out. <laughs> <laughs> they offered, at, at, at late 1980, they offered. Mm. Yeah, they hadn't put out an album yet, but they said, we could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, um, I think at the time, 
Um, management didn't want to entertain the idea because SST is just this little tiny, right. you know, thing. And um, uh, when we did revisit the idea of SST putting it out a couple years later, it ended up uh, there. Ended up, you know, different people hated different aspects of the record within the band mm. enough to where we couldn't agree on what to put out. Gotcha. <laughs> so that just kind of. At that at that point, we were killing it from within. Okay, so the band is pretty much dead between you know the early '80s and the Confession lineup. There's no shows. Really. Kind of. Now the band the Vetus doesn't leave till uh, uh, like mid '85, you know, and the rest of the band implodes after that. But. Um, during this time, like 81 to 85, we're able to headline the whiskey and, you know, places like that. I mean, we're still, nobody has, re- nobody realizes that we suck yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we're able, we were able to get um, the, the bangles and three o'clock into the whiskey for the first time. Mm. The bangles case also for the second time. <laughs> um, you know, we were... <sighs> We, we were just ourselves. We didn't do that good. But, yeah, we were, you know, inside. I mean, I I knew it was over. Yeah. And I, I think most of the band must have, but we were going through the motions, and we were, you know, we were able to, you know, pretend to be a success for several years, funnily enough. Were you continuing to write, or were you thinking of starting a different project? Uh, well, no, what happened was we, during, during our, you know, let's be a democracy and everybody gets a voice mm-hmm. phase, um, early on, I had half the band kind of rebel against the songs I was writing. And, um, it was, it was my Brian Wilson smile moment. Right. You know, it's kind of like, um, and I understand why Brian was never able to recover because, do I have to finish the sentence? <laughs> because I, in a way, was never able to recover, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Even um, the relative strengths of the SST albums and uh, the later Danger album, it's still not quite... Um, the songs still aren't quite up to what I used to be able to do effortlessly before. It's uh, there's something about the the uh, creative process, the writing process, at least for me. It's it, it's seemingly unstoppable when you're going. It's like blam, 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 no problem, you know. And then, um, but I think you need to feel that the people that that are playing the music with you have your back and appreciate the songs. If they don't, they should lie. <laughs> well, it's hard and when you when, I, when you have a really strong creative vision and you're writing the songs, most of them, and mm-hmm. you're relying on other people to to translate that music, and you're relying on producers and engineers to capture it. I can see how that could be disheartening if what you see in your mind is does not translate. Well, there's that too. Yeah, that usually happens. I mean, there's <laughs> you know, it's it's very it's difficult to get close to. To 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 actualizing what you originally heard in your head, but mm-hmm. you know, you gotta try. Um, and confession's a good example of 
Uh, there's some fun stuff. There's a lot of fun stuff about it, but you know, it's certainly not what I heard in my head. A lot of, a lot of it. Um, uh, but yeah, but yeah, and it says basically, I think it was suddenly feeling that, that, you know, the band was not with me as I had just killed me Mm -hmm. at the time. That's like, that's, that's spring of 1981. And, uh, so I've been a shadow of my former self, Ever since, but um, uh, but in answer <laughs> to try to answer the question uh, more succinctly, uh, succinctly I um, I, ba- I didn't write that much hmm. from then on. From the spring of '81, you know, I'd been writing kind of furiously, and after that little incident, uh, I stopped with uh, rare occasions. I wrote a, um, I started writing again in '85, just before the band broke up completely uh the couple of songs that i did manage to get out um because i was thinking of it was time to like do a record do a record for real those two songs would end up being on uh the confession album i think that 86 i wrote maybe one song and 87 i started writing it's yeah. like uh, two of the songs on confession were were finished in mid-december yeah there's there's dates on some of the lyrics on the lyric sheets it, it, are I, you kidding yeah you it looked like you had a creative <laughs> looks like you had a creative streak in uh december of 87 going gone was written uh let's yeah, see yeah going it's funny because going gone was had been i'd worked on going gone for some time Mm. You know, to try to get it right, just gets it's it's a, it's a quasi epic sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I finished it, and then the next day uh, I wrote "Dancing." I came up with it and had it completed uh, while taking a shower in ten minutes. <laughs> That's the way the best <laughs> songs song. happen, right? I think, yeah. yeah, yeah. So two going on and dancing are two extreme are examples of two completely different types of writing. Mm-hmm. So when you were putting this this band together i'll just ask you about the players and you can tell me you know how you met them or how they came into the band so dave nasworthy on drums yeah naz um a uh mutual friend gwen con um in beverly hills knew naz it knew he was a good drummer he was young he wasn't even 18 i don't think um but he was he was good and apparently had been um a and apparently was a last fan and and uh, even better Naz had a place to practice in Beverly uh, Hills so mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that always helps yeah you know, best best of all worlds yep. and amplifiers yep so yeah it's like a triple threat <laughs> um, yes he was in right away okay I might mispronounce his last name Luke Lones yeah Lones yeah. Uh, let's see, in uh, spring of 87, I decided to, you know, I'd, I'd had a year of, I had a year in 86 of not making music, or of not having a band. It's the one year, you know, since I hit puberty that I haven't had a band. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I decided, actually, I was going to make a solo album, and I was, I talked to Brett Gerwitz, I was oh, going to yeah. do a solo album for Epitaph, you know. Mm-hmm. And play all the instruments except for you know drums, which I just I I played drums and and it, and the fewer people that that hear the results, the better. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, I get this call from Bill Stevenson mm-hmm. saying, "No, no, you can't do it. You can't do a solo album. You have to have a band." You know? <laughs> and 
Yeah, I kind of wish I had ignored his, his advice because it would have been fun to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I and I said, you know what? Okay, I backed off because of the vehemence of Bill's protest. <laughs> uh, there's got to be something to it. What does this mean? And, I'm sure um, he can be quite course, convincing, <laughs> especially being a huge fan of the last, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I you know, I, I, yeah, it's. We'll go ahead and let him have this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, anyway, it's, I, by spring, I think I went to a Mardi Gras party, I think, at some old friends, and, um, and I thought, wow, I don't have anything to talk about because I'm, I'm nobody. I used to be a guy in a band, and now I'm not. And, and it was kind of, I said, no, I got to reform the band. Or I got, I got to get a new band together. So I called Brother Mike, said, let's, we're going to put a new band together. And, uh, we need a name. And so, you know, Mike came up with this God awful name. I can't remember what it was. And I said, well, I'll think about that and hung up. I thought, oh my God, he called back a minute later. So I'm just kidding. It should be the last. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Why not? You know, two, you know, the two, the two original singing brothers, you know, mm-hmm. I guess we can get away with that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So we did that. And my brother, David had a coworker who, um, had seen uh, one of our like 1983 shows or something, and told David um, a couple years later, if Joe ever does anything uh, musically again, you gotta let me know. And hmm. so, so David did. And that was Luke. Ah, uh, okay. That was Luke Lona's. So in um, I think March or April of '87, I, you know, called him down. Um, he played guitar, so we played some guitar together. I thought, oh, Lou, you know. So, mm-hmm. uh, so that was Luke. He brought in he brought in Larry Mankey. Uh, any relation to Earl? No, oh. no. The, the spell, there's no Y in Larry's name. Uh, so. mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I, I think I asked him that, too. <laughs> 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 Little did we know we'd end up working with Earl sometime later. Mm-hmm. But uh, for, the, for the third and final SSD album... Right. But um, that's that's beyond the scope of this interview. <laughs> um, so yeah, Larry, and it's funny too because actually, uh, since we're name dropping, uh, uh, I met Larry at Adam Nimoy's house. Mm. That would be yes, Adam, the son of Leonard, mm-hmm. um, and Leonard, of course, who is turning in his grave that Shatner got to go to space and he did. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's got to suck. No kidding. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, there was I think um it was a bachelor party for Luke. Mm. Doesn't matter, it was crazy times. But um but yeah, we uh met Larry and found out he could sing harmonies and play bass, so um and he's a friend of Luke's, so okay, fine. Yeah, that was the band. Okay. Do you have the record in front of you? I'm wondering if you can tell me who's who on the cover here. Do you want a uh, left or right? Sure. Oh, by the way, what happened was I used to take, you know, cigarette breaks. We, we recorded the album in two weeks at a, a place called Third Wave in Torrance. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just outside having a cigarette one evening, and I realized this is a great little location because it was a brick line sort of alley to get into the front door. And it, basically, yeah, that where we we are standing just outside. I, I think I'm leaning against the door. Actually, we're standing outside the studio. Oh, okay. In that photo, so that's you know. So you and, uh, when you were t- when you had this idea, you you thought this might be the cover. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, I, I, I wanted it to be the cover when I had, um, when I had the photographer uh, uh, shoot this shot. Okay. You know, we, we set it up. I liked there was a actual yellow light that that is actually being used as a light source. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, not not that that is at all that should put at all put you in mind of early Rolling Stone photographs or covers. Um, and and I'm I'm sure it's a complete coincidence that the typeface is identical to those early albums. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I kind of you know I kind of went with that idea because I thought that's ah, cool. Mm-hmm. Of course, I, I, however, this is in color and those were black and white. But, right, right. You know, this is if you look it out of our heads. I see it. Children, I see it. Yep, I see it now that you mention yeah. it for sure. Yeah, it's a complete rip, and it yeah. was I I. <laughs> I researched. I tried to get it right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, uh, do you want left or right? Sure, yeah. For the great. band members? Yeah. Okay, it's, uh, that's Luke on the far left. Luke Lotus. Mm-hmm. And then that's my brother Mike looking determined. Yep. <laughs> and then um, Nasworthy, Dave Nasworthy with the hair. Mm-hmm. And then Larry Mankey. And then um, I've I've still got that plaid shirt in my closet. Actually, <laughs> doesn't doesn't quite fit as well. But but yeah, that's me on the right there. And I don't know what my hand is doing there. I am I, am I trying to play a chord or mm-hmm. whatever? You mentioned the sessions. So Richard Andrews, I know we've seen him before on the podcast. Usually associated with Radio Tokyo. Yeah, well, that's, we've, you know, of course, had a free, well, painting smiles, a lot of that. This is before Richard Andrews was there, but we uh, we did a lot of painting smiles, of course, at Radio Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were an early, early band to start there, you know, and of course, we were very stoked to realize Ethan James had been an original Boucher guy. Right, yeah. And, uh, um, and we became friends, of course, I ended up doing some... Uh, other like session stuff for him and um and of course we we got all of our you know we got other bands to come down and record there you know some notable some less but you know um but 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 by sheer coincidence richard andrews worked at radio tokyo and i i i don't know how bill ran into him but um but yeah so he was bill's Mm go-to non-band member (laughs) uh tech guy right so third wave was kind of Stefan and Bill, I'm assuming. Well, yeah, they said Richard. Richard uh, for the Confession album, Richard was uh, was actively involved. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, Richard and um, yeah, it was it was uh, Bill working with Richard as well as Stefan. Mm-hmm. Um, that was pretty, and then me, you know, sort of mucking everything up as often as possible. <laughs> um, I remember I was going to. I wanted to uh, record the uh, rhythm guitar live, mm-hmm. which which oh you just don't which do, you just don't do any uh, any engineer worth worth their salt will tell you you don't do that. So we were I had already told Bill I was going to do that, and um, when we were starting, you know, I said, well, it's okay if there's bleed through because I'm going to be you know playing live, and then Richard said, no, you're not. And so I just said, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, me and Richard started off at a great. <laughs> okay, Joe, let's go through the tracks a little bit. So sure. it starts with So Quick to Say, written by you. Most of these songs were. Now, who's playing the 12 string on these songs? Is that you? 
trying to think if Luke did any of the 12. I don't, I think all the 12 is me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so quick to say the first two songs, so quick to say in another side were both written in 85. Mm. Um, so quick to say was the beginning of what was going to be the new 1985 album. Uh, okay. Which never happened. So that was kind of, uh, so it, it got, it got held for a couple of years. That guy got kind of, I was, I was, I was sort of attempting something kind of in the, in the Quercio style and the three o'clock style. Mm, okay. Yeah. Uh, I can hear that. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, and, those 12 string runs and stuff like that for sure. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So we did those. Yeah. And I think the, I think the runs actually weren't even thought about until like, Okay, now what can we do for an overdub? And so, oh, crap! crap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I kind of made them up on the spot. A big part of the last sound is, of course, the harmony vocals. Were you missing Dave by this point, or you know, did the harmonies fall mainly to Mike? Or I know you mentioned, you know, when you brought Luke in, you you knew he could sing. So were he and Larry also kind of finding their their spot in those in the harmonies? Mm, it's um, they're. When we initially tried them, their harmonies seemed to be much stronger than they ended up being. Mm-hmm. Like um, they could the harmony they could the, the, they they could harmonize, but it was like really soft. It was like eagle soft. Mm-hmm. It, was, <laughs> it was it was you know because me and Mike had the you know it's like we they're like Everly Brothers. The Everly Brothers want to kill you, Alton. You know, is <laughs> kind of the idea there. Uh, so it wasn't. It just. I was hoping to have like four-part harmonies. You know, like, you know, um, um, the association wants to burn your house down, sort of thing. You know, but instead, you know, uh, yeah, Luke and Larry had softer harmonies, and so they were. Really, by the by the time we were recording, I realized, yeah, we're gonna keep, we're we're gonna use them for, so like uh, la 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 sort of thing in the background, right? And it would be principally the old uh, Joe Mike combination, and it um, and it pretty much had just been me and Mike doing uh, doing all the classic uh, last songs, just gotcha. the two of us. So uh, so we had that. So we, we, and, and Bill, of course, being an old time, old school last fan was, was all in favor. He said, yeah, I go for Joe Mike. (laughs) The next song, another side, another one of yours. Love this one. Total rocker. I just love those working class lyrics on this song. Ah, thanks. Thanks. They were, and they were heartfelt, believe me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's the sort of song that I could have written every damn wake up at six in the morning. (laughs) day of my life mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um but yeah 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 that is kind of a little socialist kind of a thing huh, how nice but um yeah yeah another side totally totally real heartfelt song about how much i hate having to work at a job you do not want to do for a living right when you should be a rock star not a <laughs> but yeah okay <laughs> that was that yeah that's a fun one um, and we would do so quick to say in another side, we're both live staples for years. Mm-hmm. I, the tracking, I, I bowed to Bill. Um, I wanted to put Going Gone as the first song. I had a completely different song order in mind. And Bill said, no, no, the art, the art is over once you've recorded. You know, the uh, packaging is all about yeah. 
about selling. And um, I, I still disagree, actually, respectively with that. I respectfully with that. I think that, you know, the whole everything about the presentation of the album. See, back then there were albums, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the presentation of the album should be uh, presumably part of the art insofar as you know, sure. you're trying to make sure. make a statement. If it's if it's any sort of a cohesive thing, if there's a reason for the songs to be together, there's probably a proper order. But whatever. In retro in retrospect, the order the song order that we had is just fine. Yeah, sequencing is huge for sure. So that you mentioned yeah. going gone, is that Bill doing the call and response vocal in that song? Oh, Bill's doing the um, and I, I wrote the part for him because I wanted to get him on a song. I thought, <laughs> ah, the end of going gone. So I wrote the uh, gone. Oh, that's him at the gone, end. Gone, yeah. gone. That's all, that's all, Bill. Yeah, um, but the call response thing is me and Mike. Okay, that's of course the epic that took a couple of months, I think, to write. Is it? The single in your mind? Is that why you wanted it first? Um, I just wanted it first. It just uh, because it starts with just voice, you know. Mm-hmm. It just starts totally stark. I thought that would be a great way to begin the proceedings, you know. You know, and then boom! I don't believe it's true. And then here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Right. Alas, kaboom! You know, <laughs> it would have been fun. Speaking of Mike, he's up next with "And They Laugh." Now. Yeah. Were there issues in the band around songwriting and like who's as far as representation on on albums like who you know who gets the most songs or were you were you were you all perfectly fine with the arrangement? Oh, after the um, sort of um, early to mid '80s era during which everybody had their say, I uh, I knew that never again was I going <laughs> to cede any control to anybody else in the band. It's your band. Um, There's no right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's yeah. my band. I got a vision and, you know, I um obviously if if, if I'll know if it isn't quite working for some people because they presumably would leave. Yeah. Um but um but yeah, but I wanted to make sure that Mike got at least two songs on it. Mm-hmm. And I was I certainly had a bunch that um Mike's always got some songs, you know. You know, but I, I had, um, you know, had had a little spurt of creativity, you know, in late 87, as apparently evidenced by uh, the dates. Um, but I wanted to make sure there were at least a couple of Mike songs. And, um, you know, I pick, I picked the two that, that I knew I could have the most fun helping him arrange. Right. You know, because his songs, what, what, what he would have would just be sort of, you know, him singing and playing, you know, a piano or an organ, you know, and that was it. And, um, you know, so um, everywhere you turn, I had different ideas. And, and they laughed, though. I thought, man, that could be a 12-string doing that riff. Mm-hmm. You know, cause it was just a keyboard riff. And I thought, oh, I could do it. Down, now, now, now. Oh, extensive use of the 12-string. And poor Stefan is having to retune and retune the 12, <laughs> which is a, a thankless job at best. Sure, you're never yeah. going to get it quite in tune, especially the G strings. You know, yeah. it's just like, ah. And so Stefan is just like cursing, cursing me, cursing the guitar, cursing well, music. You know? Further to your <laughs> earlier comments about, you know, the live off the floor sound of a band in a studio, maybe you don't want that 12 string perfectly in tune. 
Oh, you know, I, I would agree, but it, but but Bill Stevenson's there, and he wants everything perfect. <laughs> right. He wants everything just perfect, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, no pun in, or uh, pun intended. <laughs> pun, yes, pun pun acknowledged, intended, yep. <laughs> and created for such a effect. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, and I and and you know, and I as far as I'm concerned, if you we want to try to get in tune, because it's not going to happen anyway. Right. So it's, it's like. Right. I figured, like, sort of the accidental garaginess would, 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 you know, will, will manifest itself regardless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not something you have to try. Right. I saw your eyes and other of yours. Now, I, I was really noticing the clean guitar tone on, on all of these songs. Was that hard for you? I, I mean, I, I feel like that's hard, playing with super clean tones like that. That's tough, and of course, well, I can't. I am. Um, I don't know if you ever, <laughs> if you get to next year, and we we have another discussion about awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> awakening. I ended up using a lot of fuzzy, uh, more sort of like normal expected fuzzy guitars. Uh, this one I didn't. It's interesting because um, L.A. Explosion is a very jangly, clean little album. And people would hear it on the local radio, and they'd come take with their dates, expecting nice music, and we'd be, you know, pretty scary live. And it'd be ah, and of course, then we'd see these same people two weeks later, and the skinny ties were gone, and suddenly their <laughs> their clothes are torn, and and, and they've discovered new hair colors. Uh, so we were kind of like a halfway house in yeah at that time for you know sort of bridging the gap between New Wave and the more interesting uh, punk rock. Um, but L.A. Explosion was supposed to be a lot harder, but the engineer that we used in order to get the studio we wanted um, hated distortion. Mm. And we actually had a three-hour session where we just we didn't record anything. We just argued. <laughs> and... Uh, our manager eventually just took me aside and said, you know, you can keep pushing for distortion and we won't make a re- we won't be able to make a record mm. or you can, you know, give in and we'll, you know, so I had no choice. And so LA explosion was not meant to be clean and, and became that way by choice and against every fiber of my being, um, so why uh, did we? So why was it clean for... I don't know. Well, I it, honestly it, don't know. It sounds great. It's a great sounding record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it turns out okay, but it's, 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 it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, the next song, It Isn't Really You. I, I just want to know what's going on at the end of this song. <laughs> Yeah, okay, it isn't really you. It's like, isn't really you is a good example of why we needed that distortion, because, like, the parts that should have been the loudest are suddenly, it's like somebody turned the volume down. It's like the da 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 That should have been sort of Sledgehammer, you know, Ramon's drone or something, you know. And But it's only me on a 12-string, you know, playing all that music because our rhythm guitarist Luke Lonas doesn't play that way so we did it. anyway so um, it isn't really you uh, 
Oh, are you talking about the uh, the very bad attempt at uh, yeah. channeling Jim Morrison? Is that what it is? <laughs> when I'm going, yeah, another room. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was just briefly trying to do a Jim Morrison because I thought it would be, I don't know, funny. Mm. Um, I've usually done it better, but that wasn't, you know. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, okay, we'll go from there to another room. <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, is that, is that, are mm-hmm. those vocals what you were referring yep. to? Is, yep. What the hell's going on? Yeah. Yep. It's, it's, it's... <sighs> Had we done one more take, probably there wouldn't be anything to question. <laughs> 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 just, yeah, just having fun. Okay. Uh, flipping it over. Don't care. I believe you said is one of the 85 songs. I, I hear a modern, nope. I hear a modern lover's influence there. You... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I never thought about Modern Lovers. I mean, it, it, that makes sense. I'll tell you why. It's so quick to say in another side, we're both uh, 85. Don't Care is 76. Uh, oh, that goes way back. Don't Yeah, Don't Care is like the um, second or third song, the punk song that I wrote for this new punk rock endeavor. Mm. So this was right after... I was lucky when the Modern, the modern Lovers, if you look online... It's like everybody, because everybody copies from each other online. Nobody researches themselves. Every, you know, it's like they have the Modern Lovers coming out after the Ramones album, right? Which is like, well, obviously it was recorded earlier, but that's also bullshit because uh, I had the damn album in uh, February of '76, <laughs> <laughs> right? Far, you know, uh, uh, a good four or five months before um, the first Ramones, and um, it was just on Playboy Records. I think that after its initial release, it got uh, pulled for a couple of months and then reissued with an extra distributor on it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but the original album came out. I was working at a record store, so I got it as soon as it came out. And um, you know, I was desperate because I wanted to do punk rock, and I didn't have a lot to go on. Obviously, I knew that the Velvets and the Stooges are influences. Okay, that's, that's, that's good, and as it should be, and that... Um, the uh, 60s uh, garage punk scene is a big influence. Okay, and that's good. Right. And um, outside of that, there's the Dictators album from uh, 75. Yep. There's not really a lot of uh, recent stuff out there because, you know, it's a new scene. Who the hell's going to be putting any of this on record? So the Modern Lovers album... I knew about, and I knew, okay, this is, this is, you know, this should be, you know, a somewhat definitive sort of idea of, um, of the, the sort of more recent, uh, punk rock ethos. And, uh, of course it's still, I consider one of the greatest albums I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, oh my God, you know, we were doing most of, we were doing at least half of the album, I would say, um, at practices in 76 and stuff, um, Obviously, Pablo Picasso, which um, I think, did we? Yeah, I think we recorded, I think a recording that we did at, at, at the first last practice in October of 76 actually made it onto a Bop compilation. Mm. Um, but, you know, we did Pablo Picasso, um, Hospital was one of my favorites. Yep. Um, yep. I, I don't think we did Roadrunner, just because it was too obvious. Yep. Well, that's the hit. Everybody will do that, so screw that. But, you know, I mean, she cracked. Anyway, brilliant, brilliant album. Yeah. Um, 
And that I, I started writing right after that. That was it, you know. Mm-hmm. And the first, I wrote a song called Obliteration in, I think, March. And um, I think, no, I think in February, I think March is when I wrote Don't Care. Don't Care is the second or third song. It's just, you know, because I was also listening to a lot of 50s. Right. I was, like, dividing my time at home listening to as much early cool 50s stuff as well as mid as cool mid sixties, you know, one, one hit wonders. But, um, you know, I was, I think finally discovering like just how brilliant Bo Diddley was and the, the, um, just the, the, the polysyllable, the, 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 the stuff that was going on with the beats, you know, that nobody else would be capable of comprehending, thinking about it or, you know, let alone executing. And, you know, I thought this isn't just a da 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 Tommy James style. This is like, this is a doom ba da 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 And there's, there's a lot of stuff going on here. And, um, you know, so I need us. So I wrote going, uh, so I wrote, uh, uh, where are we? Don't care. <laughs> you know, as an attempt to kind of like explore some of that cool rhythmic stuff. And, you know, of course, that that little midsection, you know, how lonely I've been, you know, that's. I just thought, okay, what if the Rolling Stones wrote "Don't Care"? You know, <laughs> <laughs> that would be their midsection, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so that we just never recorded it. So, yeah, now mm. now's the time. Very cool. Okay, "Soldiers of Love." Now, how do you know this song? Is it the Arthur uh, Alexander version? I'd like to say that, but <laughs> I'd be lying through my teeth. You yeah. know, it's like it's yeah, this is um, uh, a, a bootleg of um the beatles bbc mm-hmm. um performances because it's like you know i mean and i uh, no offense to arthur but what makes the song is the damn three-part beetle harmony right. when they're doing the lay down on your you know there's uh there's just something there that's just like as 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 good as please please me it's just like i, I assumed it was the beatles but i i i don't believe like as you just mentioned that it was officially released at that point yeah, no, no, it wouldn't, and and I mean, and, and a couple of days, de- uh, yeah, two or three decades later, you know, they would finally officially release the BBC tapes, you know, mm-hmm. which would include Soldier of Love, but um, before that, you could only get it on uh, bootlegs, <laughs> uh, which is a shame, of course, because it was so good. Yeah. Um, uh, but they, yeah, they were doing a lot of brilliant covers. They had a great cover of, um, you know, If You Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody. And uh, Freddie and the Dreamers like thought thought they did a good job, so they stole it from them and <laughs> had a nice big hit with it. And yeah. Beatles said, "Okay, <laughs> we can't do these things live. People are going to steal them." Yeah. But uh, "Soldier of Love" is something that I had done with. I think Vetus had started to sing some harmony at this time. This was mid. This was early to mid '80s, but there were there were occasional moments, and I decided to try throwing in Soldier of Love, and I think I had Vitus and Brother Dave, maybe somebody else, singing harmonies along with me. And one night at the Whiskey, we did Soldier of Love, and it sounded great. And I guess my feeling was, if it sounded great once, it could sound great again. It didn't. (laughs) (laughs) What I wanted to accomplish, I didn't. The downside of of finishing a record in just two weeks which I I know that's supposed to be a luxury for SST bands, but that's right. 
you know, that's pretty damn short a time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I mean, I, it's a short time because you see, yeah, I mean, you got to figure out working eight hours a day right. at the same time during these two weeks. You know, it's not like, uh, so the, the downside is that you don't really have perspective to decide what should be on and off a record. Soldier of Love didn't work out as it should, but we ended up putting it out anyway. Okay. It's just the harmonies, then that's an example of sort of like I had Luke and Larry singing the harmonies and just like it's 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 just not right. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, the next song, Book. Yeah. I'm I'm looking at mm-hmm. these amazing handwritten lyrics. Who, who did these? <laughs> Is that you? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. Oh, uh, cool. I love the yeah, little doodles I... on the around the the one for Book, the little tombstone and. Uh huh. Yeah, I'd forgotten about. It. I, 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 I uh, yeah. Well, as soon as you you started talking about it, I remembered doing that. And, oh yeah. Okay. Fun with that. Um, and uh, book book is is another sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, Rolling Stones rip off. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. I mean, I think it's kind of like a. Well, I had I think I've got a direct uh, a direct lick from Sister Morphine in there. As a matter of fact. <laughs> okay, I'll but, listen um, for that. <laughs> like if Sister. Yeah, it's like this one part where all of a sudden it stops. It's one of the stops, and then there's down, 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 down. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, so maybe book would be like if Sister Morphine had been written in '66 instead of, you know, '69 or '70. Yeah, book was another one that was kind of hammered out. It was like um, I had to go to practice, and I sent, and I was in the South Bay, and a couple other people were too. I sent them off without me. I said, just go. Um, because I just came up with books, so I had to write it. And then I got to practice half an hour later and said, okay, here it is. Okay. <laughs> it just kind of came out. I was I was mad at somebody, and so I just I just wrote the song about them. Okay, that works. And, uh, that's, a way, yeah, that's one yeah. way to do it. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the so next much so- better afterwards. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next song, Dancing, uh, another of the 1287 uh, tracks this one to me yeah. you'd mentioned folk music earlier this almost sounds like electrified folk in a way oh baby i dad oh baby try and understand <laughs> run 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 i'd had that little thing rolling around for for actually years so i guess i'm cheating when i say i wrote it in 10 minutes but yeah. i'd never had never gone beyond that you know yeah, and, and and dancing. I mean, lyrically is is it's got meaning, and I'd like to find out what it is someday. You know? <laughs> it almost like just the the pattern of the vocals. It, you know, the way the song's structured, not lyrically, but the structure. It kind of makes me think of a murder ballad for some reason, if that makes sense. And somebody, yeah, and 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 and, and actually, I just and in in you know, sort of like doing a little bit of online research, I ran into an old review. Uh, where dancing is compared to a song called Maddie Grows by Fairfork Convention, mm. which is an old, you know, hundred, uh, several hundred year old um, uh, murder ballad, mm. and which is interesting because that's the first Fairfork Convention song I ever heard. And I heard it on FM radio after FM radio should have been no good. Um, but I heard it, thought it was the greatest thing ever. Uh, found the album Legion Leaf, and, um, you know, yeah, Maddie Grows. It's basically. Um, a murder ballad, and uh, yeah, 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 and the whole, and um, it's, yeah, it's just a song where 
bad things keep happening and then everything everything's ends up having this weird kind of you know twisted underground to it mm-hmm. <laughs> all right um that's a that's that's one of my favorites i yeah I, it's I, it's a cool song I love, I love songs yeah. like this you know that there's not necessarily a chorus to it per se true mm-hmm. oh you know if the guy there's a guy at bakersfield who saw me play I actually did an acoustic set opening up solo for the Violent Femmes mm. back. Um, I w- actually had I actually had Violent Femmes written in my notes here, as far as you know, when I say electrified folk, you know. Oh, how funny! Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. We have yeah, we have we have we're, we have connections in a couple of interesting ways. It's it's, it's you know it's mm. funny. But yeah, this uh, this uh, guy is in Bakersfield. This guy came up and asked, you know, he wanted to get that song, mm-hmm. and I didn't have the confession album, you know, to sell him. But anyway, if if this guy, if the guy from Bakersfield still wants that song, it's on uh, this album, uh, Confession. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, it's been about <laughs> twenty years, but oh well. <laughs> okay, okay. Another of Mike's dating back to, according to the lyric sheet. 86 everywhere you turn oh, okay i um yeah everywhere you turn that's the other one for that one um that one i had fun i said yeah it's it's it's, it's it sounded good if we started like getting crazier and crazier you know getting faster and faster at the end of certain sections right um so we did that and um came up i came up you know with some good harmony stuff I mean, the harmonies stopped. The harmonies, because we only had two weeks, I'd rehearsed, you know, all the different harmony parts in advance, you know, so that we were all set to go um, as, as 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 much as could be uh, by the time that we actually started recording. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, so we had that stuff worked out. But for every return, what I'm really happy about is that we ended up recording. Um, we, 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 we set it up to where uh, the sort of first half of the song kind of like, plays and then you know and then it fades out and then just as it's almost faded out uh mike comes in boom and it's a new you know it's the second half um but yeah i liked you know the 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 moving tempos and yeah it's it's almost like two songs in one yeah yeah it's like basically it's my job to you know to take his songs and you know bring 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 their magic out partly by just you know shaking things up yeah that it didn't sound too sort of linearly dull. And then the record ends with the amazing title track, Confession. I, I Talking about sequencing, I think a great way to end the record. That's true. That's yeah. true. I enjoy it, I guess. I guess, well, and that that would be with uh, going going with Bill's reasoning. He probably wouldn't care what was left. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I did want Confession to end the record, mm-hmm. so that worked out good. Um, I... There are a few songs. Uh, there's at least one song like that on all three SST albums. Mm-hmm. Each one about somebody different. That's uh, about as far as I'll go on that. But um, um, and in each case, I wanted to do it pretty dry. I wanted to, you know, sing it honestly, mm-hmm. which I guess is cool. I I, I do kind of wish I'd done a little bit more instrumentalization with these. Just because there's a lot that could have been done with confession, mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot of 
Well, actually, now I think about it, I'm hearing, you know, violins, so maybe it, it could have yeah. <laughs> gone too far really fast. But, uh, um, but yeah, no, it was, um, uh, that was one of the late 87 songs. And, um, you know, yeah. I liked it, and I, you know. Did you, after this record was done, did you tour the record? Uh, kind of. We did a mini, we did, we, we played a lot of local shows, but we did, we went out to, uh, what did they used to call that thing? Bad the 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 uh, the CMJ mm-hmm. yep. festival. Is, uh, we went out there, so we basically we went out there for a week, mm-hmm. and so we got to play uh, Boston, uh, at least a couple of different New York shows. Um, uh, we did DC, which we almost missed because of traffic. Uh, and it was terrible because there were so many people there. There was like a big turnout. They were very excited to see the last. And we were, you know, or was that? No, that might have been a different tour. Oh God, I've become an old person. <laughs> getting, getting, God, uh, which war was that? <laughs> okay, uh, let's back up. Anyway, we played, we we played a few shows, and I think I'm pretty sure, yeah, because okay, the the highlight for me was. Um, uh, getting introduced to uh, Lenny K, the the Nuggets guy, right, and right, yeah. Patty Smith guy, mm-hmm. got introduced to Lenny K at CBGBs. Oh wow! <laughs> and which is just perfect, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so that was just that was like uh, that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Now, where where does this one stack up for you with the in the SST era? This record. Where oh, how does it rate compared yeah. to the others? Yeah. Uh, I think um, everybody's going to agree that Awakening is probably at the bottom of the list mm-hmm. uh, for different reasons. Um, I, you know, uh, we, um, it, there, well, there are reasons which we, you know, may someday get into. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's hard to say because there's a lot I like about the Gin and Innuendos album, which. Um, you know, it's almost unknown because it got a really, it it, it really, it, it got a kind of a cold release. I right. Think. Yeah. But you know, it's it's it's, Gin and Nuendos is kind of a wrap up, uh, record. There's a lot of tracks on it. Uh, I think it's really good. Mm-hmm. But it also took, you know, years <laughs> to do because we had Earl Banky was into working on it, so he didn't have much of a budget, so. You know, he said, if you want to, you know, really, I'd like I'd like to spend a lot more time on it, but it would have to, you know, be, you know, as I can between other projects, which I agreed to. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a, a few years of, of, of getting the thing done. Okay. But the first album was two weeks recording, start to finish. We got a lot of great harmonies, a lot of fun things, a lot of things. There's a lot of things I wish were different, but... Um, then again, I always wish that with For every sure. record. I think that's most every artist, do, right? That's a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but um, possibly, yeah. This this would possibly, I think, uh, be number one. It's a great record. Now, you mentioned the documentary, which is great. Can't wait for that. What about new music from Joe Nolte, though? Is that a possibility? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, um, it's just it's been. Um, I haven't been going out much for a year and a half. I'm trying to figure out why. There was some kind of a reason. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I thought you said we weren't talking about that. <laughs> oh yeah, right, right, right. Okay, that 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 COVID thing, which we are not talking about. Right, yes, right. which is it's. Uh, I've been, you know, I've, you know, I've, 
I've got it crazy. I actually listen to the scientists. Mm-hmm. What a novel yeah, concept. I, I eh? mean, it's <laughs> yeah, novel concept. Yeah. You know, it's it's it's. I think that. Uh, um, yeah, I, I think that's it. I think I think that as you proceed further south geographically, your brain cells just kind of gravitate north <laughs> and stay there. Well, you said it, not me. Yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> from what I, <laughs> from my experiences in uh, both countries and and in different areas of this one, I, <laughs> I, I kind of think maybe uh, there's something to say to that, but uh, I'll keep it general because I know I have a lot of friends who are fairly right wing, which mm-hmm. may, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Anyway, so yeah, see, there you go. I start, yeah. Uh, start <laughs> it's about it's difficult not to. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous, mm-hmm. it's a ridiculous time. It's like, it's like, you know, you know, people, the uh, people, there, there used to be large groups of friends that had different political, yep. private beliefs among them, you know, didn't ever, you know, they, uh, yeah, 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 yep. idiocy. Anyway. But yeah, so we've we've I've I've kept a very low profile. Uh, mm-hmm. um, in the meantime, our 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 youngest band member uh, James Nolte, who is the son of uh, Brother David. Mm-hmm. You know, we're now multi generational, right. but you know, right. gotta yeah. have Nolte's in the band. Yep. Um, he's I, he's currently playing in Love Revisited. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, I know. It's uh, I get following in his father's footsteps on. You know, for sure, multiple levels. Yep. Yeah, it's a matter where um, um, I'm trying to work with Vitus on restoring some of the old, old recordings. Oh, great! And 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 simultaneously, I've been teach what I've been doing insofar as I've done anything is teaching the band, the current band. Um, you know, some of the really old stuff going back to '75 and '76. Oh well, it's got to be. There's still a ton. You know, well, oh, sorry. I was just going to say the reissue got such a great reaction that I was hoping that was going to spur on, you know, more. It it it, it it's done that at least among me and Vitus, we're both very keen to. That's great. You know, to do more, mm-hmm. and um, indeed, before we started the Look Again reissue project, um, um, I'd already been, you know, starting to. Um, work on the older songs mm-hmm. so but yeah so there's now more of a push well and also because of the documentary now right, you know right. we need some of that stuff so um yeah yeah That's so there's, there's gonna be new stuff i may be you know slightly distracted by stuff that's like you know 45 years old mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then again i've got songs from back then that never got finished and that might be a really sneaky way to get some new ones in but um hey, but yeah if it be... if it works for the descendants it can work for the lost exactly <laughs> yeah true there's a lot of that going around yep. good point yep. yeah right on joe oh. thanks so much for taking yeah. the time to talk to me today i, I really appreciate hey. it oh my pleasure my pleasure it was it was it was good fun all right so cool to hear from joe like i said i mean what a story in terms of what it took to bring this record back together. It seemed like it was meant to be right. Yeah. And, and couldn't have been pulled together with, uh, better people behind the, the console, you know, Bill Stevenson and, uh, Stefan Edgerton, you know, tuning up 
the 12 string to make sure that you know everything stayed on the rails nice and, one and richard andrews as well we've we've yeah. seen richard richard a number of times lawndale alternatives treacherous pat ruth and smear sylvia Jancosa, many more yeah yeah usually more connected to radio tokyo yeah and notwithstanding you know the classic band the classic lineup the classic album la explosion found three other people to join joe and mike that fit right in and put together like an amazing record that makes it sound like the last didn't even like didn't miss a beat right i can't imagine it was too difficult to find people to play with with joe nolte you know yeah yeah exactly a few things ryan uh he's been on a number of different podcasts which i'll mention in a minute here but one thing i just noticed that runs through all of them, including our interview with him, is he kind of is tortured. Like he's a tortured artist yeah. by the history of the last and the, the, uh, you know, the inability to capture their sound and, or to get proper releases of their material. Or full credit. Yeah. For their, for their influence. They are one of those pioneers that has yet to really get their, their due i mean i think that they got more than they have in a long time with the look again release last year though oh yeah for sure i like what he says about the last bridging the gap between skinny tie new wave and la punk rock that's very true for sure he mentions ryan playing at cmj festival i remember yeah on on one of our dos domin episodes i think it was jupiter eye they they taught the guys talk about i think that was the one we had brian long on as a guest who serviced radio for SST. They talk about that, that festival and tell some hilarious stories about that convention, like the new music seminar or whatever it was called. Yeah. Yeah. I used to buy that magazine. It would come out with like a sampler CD of new releases or new bands. And like, this is back in the nineties and I used to buy CMJ all the time. Yeah, well, I got thinking about that series of shows, and listeners may have seen the poster for for these these series called "A Live Godhead Club Dude Experience New Music Seminar '88." Mm-hmm. So here here's what went down: the Pops played at CBGB's and Maxwell's. The HR band did a show. Uh, run what there was a big show called billed as the Power Rock Experience at CBGB's with Run Westy Run headlining. Soundgarden, Das Domin, The Last, Sylvia Jancosa, Universal Congress of, Kirk Kelly and Roger Manning, who also had a few separate solo acoustic shows. And then there was another one at the knit, Knitting Factory called No Age Experience Night. Oh. Featuring the world premiere of Negative Land's No Other Possibility 60-minute film, which you, is must-see TV. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, or as a bonus DVD in the 2007 Sealand reissue of A Big 10-8 Place. Also on that bill were Elliot Sharp, Universal Congress of, Alternatives, and Lee Ronaldo. I, and I was thinking, everybody always talks about the tour, and, and don't get me wrong, that was an amazing lineup, but I feel like this was the most impressive batch of shows that SST Global kind of ever booked. Ever? Yeah. Whoa. Hey, Ryan, a few podcast shout-outs. The C86 show, September of last year, with host David uh, Eastbow. He's British, and he's had some great guests on. Uh, Charlie Harper, Richard Lloyd, Kira. Uh, focus on UK labels and artists. 
Uh, a favorite in, in, interview of mine was with David Barker of Glass Records. Uh, he, ha he had Joe on last September. Beach Blanket Fort Bingo with Stephen Shee. Uh, he interviewed Joe in August of 2019 with a focus on the LA Explosion record. But by far my favorite podcast, period, I just love it, is Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme with Soraya and Jeff. Great focus on the Paisley Underground bands. Uh, they had Joe on a while back, a couple times, uh, but unfortunately they're not in, in their feed anymore. They had David Nolte on in 2019 talking about the last Wednesday Week Descendants Vina Cava, the short-lived band he had with John Talley Jones. Uh, he's played with Dave Davies. They have another episode with a panel discussion on The Last Look Again uh, with Tom Stevens of The Long Riders. Uh, this was before it was reissued. And then they've had Vetus and John Rosewall on uh, to talk about Petrified Max. Uh, more recently, they had the entire band Wednesday Week on. And then they had Joe on in December of last year with Vetus to talk all about the Look Again reissue. They've had so many great guests, uh, and Jeff and Soraya are a fountain of knowledge with a great passion for the music, which I obviously appreciate. And they also put me in touch with Joe. Nice. Should we chat about these tracks, Ryan? Sure, man. History Lesson Part 2. Okay, before we get into these, let me hit you with a Spaceman Spiel. Okay. Out of the SST catalog, The Last Confession, lordy, 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 the godhead dudes that are the acknowledged inspiration of music mongers ranging from Bill Stevenson, who produced the disc, to just about everyone else who saw them play before their tragic breakup in 1985 are back. 12 firstage from The Lastage, SST 189, LP, cassette, and CD. Yeah. All right, the track listing is the same on all three versions, no bonus tracks. We start with track one, So Quick to Say, written by Joe. Uh, if you were a Last fan back in 88 and dropped the needle on this, you'd know that the Last were back for sure. Yeah, for We've sure, got man. Those killer 12-string Rickenbacker runs, this is just a top-notch opener. Dates Back to 85 was going to be the opener on a possible album in 85. I think Joe says in the interview something in the Quercio style, of course, which is a reference to Michael Quercio of a half dozen amazing bands, most notably Salvation Army, who turned mm -hmm. into the Three O'Clock. Yeah, great harmony vocals, great driving song. I had the same thing here, you know, the last are back. Yeah. And then the second track, Another Side, written by Joe, a total rocker, great lyrics about being a working stiff, definitely comes across as kind of folk rock. Uh, the lyrics, people talk of revolution, talk of equal distribution, talk is cheap and no solution. When you realize you're the only people on your side are the pawns they've yet to bribe. Ouch. Yeah. Venomous. Venomous. Yeah. Great Tom's breakdown too for me in this song. Yeah. Yeah. Dave Nasworthy is obviously a great drummer. Oh yeah. Okay. Ryan then, Going Gone, written by Joe, starts with a guitar chord and then this amazing vocal comes in. For me, not only is this the best song on this record, mm -hmm. it's probably the best last song. It might be. It is the one that plays in your mind yeah. all week long after listening to it just once. And, it, and you know, I haven't listened to this record for a while, probably a couple of years, honestly. 
it's the one that when it came on, I was like, yes, you know, and already singing along with it because it just, it's an earworm. It gets into your DNA immediately. Yeah. Um, great call and response vocals on this one. Great outro too. Yeah. Really have, good outro. That too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, a song's good when the outro deserves mention. Yeah. I mean, the last have so many great songs to say this is their best song is really saying something. And mm-hmm. the sequencing too, like I, I'm with Bill on this one. You put the, you put the hit third, not first. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Here's a, a review, Ryan, from uh, Record Journal in Connecticut, December of 88. Their lyrics were not always as pretty as the instrumental packaging. Death yep. was a big theme, as was lost love. But in the end, all the songs were about searching for salvation. The best cut among many good ones on Confession was Going Gone, a song about those special times in life when you fall madly in love on a subway. The greatest love I ever had was over before it ever began, concluded the lead singer with sadness in his voice after leading listeners through a description of the momentary relationship. I think Joe calls this the epic Mm -hmm. in the interview, and it for sure is. It's epic even at a short song length too. Yeah. Right? Because of just the way that it is written and structured, it has an epic quality. Yeah. For me, it's this one in that song, Difference off of look again or just give me the feels when I hear them. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Track four and they laugh. This is our, one of our two Mike Nolte written songs with Mike Mm -hmm. on vocals. He can belt it out too. Uh, super catchy song, some great 12 string licks and some totally tasty keys for Mike. Yeah. Way back in the mix too even under the 12 string guitar is some really cool surf guitar tones and sounds that I was digging as well. Like I had to listen hard for them, but when they come through, it's kind of a nice little surprise. I saw your eyes written by Joe, another great rocker. Uh, Love the bitch and 12 string solo section. Luke on the electric sitar as well. Yeah. Track six. It isn't really you. Uh, this one almost has a new wavy feel to it. Mm, Joe yeah. channeling Jim Morrison, I think is, is what he says. And then side one ends with, uh, what I think is the start of the song book. Like maybe they were just going to go right into it. Yeah. Cause he shouts out, I, nah. Yeah. And that ends side one, flip it over. And we start with don't care written by Joe. You can hear to me what he means when he says he was trying to write something in the rhythmic Bo Diddley vein. Mm. I think he says this is one of the first songs he wrote dating back to 76. Yeah, it's a sh- it's a pretty short little revved up number for sure. Cool bass lines too. Mm-hmm. Soldiers of Love, written by Buzz Kaysen and Tony Moon. Uh, it's subtitled Lay Down Your Arms often when you see it. Originally recorded in 1962 by soul artist Arthur Alexander, you can definitely hear the Motown soul vibes here, but as Joe mentions, he was inspired by the Beatles version, which they recorded at the BBC on July 2nd, 1963, sung by John Lennon, uh, which wasn't officially released until 1994. Track three, Book. This, This one's written by Joe, the longest track for sure, six minutes long. This is the one that starts with I. It's a heavy track. 
Yeah. Like it's it's heavy. It's got a weird whammy bar solo type thing going on. A complete stop and restart and return. This is a this is a odd composition for Joe, I would say, but yeah. it works on the album. Yeah, it's one of those ones that it kind of goes back and forth between the more aggressive sounding stuff, like the moody parts and then the kind of Beatles-esque pop. You've got uh, backing vocals from Bill Stevenson and Richard Andrews. Love the lyrics. What do you expect from me? Some kind of puppet that you can operate so easily? Track four, Dancing, written by Joe. Joe mentions Fairport Convention in many of his interviews as an influence and talks about, I think in ours, uh, this traditional song, Matty Groves from 1969, which, or, or that's, sorry, when Fairport did their version was 69 on mm-hmm. Liege and Leaf. Listen to that back to back with this. You can definitely hear the influence. This one could have been done to great effect by a band like the Pogues, even, or Violent Femmes. Yep. Uh, or, or you know, I made this weird connection when I was listening to it, because it is such a folky number about those Greg Graffin solo mm. albums that really shone a light on how Greg writes folk songs for Bad Religion. I could hear Bad Religion doing, like, an amplified version of this song 100%. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Not sure why it's called Dancing. It does not mention dancing anywhere in the song. Track five, Everywhere You Turn. This is another Mike song. Kind of piano-based, almost a ballad. I I love the arrangement, how it fades out and restarts. Mike's vocal just slays on this one. Yeah. Yeah, Joe and Mike's vocals were just a match made in heaven, right? Literally. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and then end with the title track, Confession. Great solo acoustic ballad from Joe. Ends the album off. It's really personal and beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, solid album. Great sequencing. Yeah. Yeah, I have a few reviews here, Ryan. This one, uh, I don't know where this one came from. I'm just plucking from these reviews. I'm not reading the whole thing. But it's written by Rick Rieger. Speaking of SST, they're putting out a lot of records lately and covering a lot of turf, sty- stylistically speaking. Naturally, I've heard people saying, like, man, SST's putting out a lot of shit lately. Yeah, like they're into this variety thing, man. How bogus. Gee, remember the days when you didn't have to buy a record on SST because you knew what it would sound like simply because it was SST product? Well, Confession is the first pop record I think I've heard on SST. That's right, pop music, and it rules. And about slagging SST, only a true gooberhead knocks somebody for succeeding where so many others haven't even bothered to try. Hell yeah. Here's from LA Rock, September of 88. Back in 81 or 82, you could cruise down to Redondo, go to a party, and hear some bands that are now a seminal part of today's music scene. Leaving Trains, The Urinals, who became 100 Flowers, who became Radwaste, To Damascus, who became Sylvia Jancosa. David Roback and Kendra Smith, Dream Syndicate, Rain Parade, Opal, all playing at a little house by the beach. Here's from the CMJ New Music Report, Ryan, July of 88. After the dust had long settled from the LA explosion, those SoCal dudes have popped back into our hearts 12 years after the brothers Nolte decided it would be a good idea to start a band, and fortunately they've rem- remembered why the last was such, I- such a good idea in the first place. By Joe Nolte's own admission, the last had, after, ec- after their excellent, excellent debut LP, bowed to the pressure to tidy up their sound, a mistake which led to their demise in 1985. 
Confession picks up right back where they started on the trail of 60, 60s retro pop. Like their in English counterparts, the Barracudas, they take the freshness, bouncy melodies, and smooth harmonies characteristic of surf and English mid-60s groups, and they inject a more nowish crunch and speed. Then again, on occasion, they also time travel, a line be stretched between the jam and the shoes. So interesting to see, you know, what kind of bands they were being compared to. Mm -hmm. For sure. Here's just a few more real quick, Ryan. The Daily Breeze Entertainer, July of 88. It hardly seems possible that more than a decade has passed since the last released She Don't Know Why I'm Here, a roaring rocker that came out during the wildest days of L.A. punk rock. Confession is the last, first last album in years since 1983's French-only Painting Smiles on a Dead Man, but the band has lost none of its intensity. Leader Joe Nolte's slashing lead guitar style remains the spark behind the band's stripped-down sound, which happily has remained impervious to current trends. And the last one, Ryan, is from Sheet Metal Number 4, which I'm gathering was like a metal zine or something. You're going to review the last in Sheet Metal? Ex-Black Flagger Chuck Dukowski howled at me over the phone. Duke's been convinced I'm insane for some time now, but I don't see what's so nuts about re reviewing Confession, the new reunion LP from LA Punk Pioneers The Last. In a metal mag, it's a great fucking record. Where they once bowed before Iggy's altar, now they careen along a jangly path like a supercharged bird's with steroid-pumped Rickenbackers. Joe Nolte's quirky, herky-jerky vocalizens, certainly enough to yank from this cutesy 60s revivalism, but tunes like Going Gone would be the tits in any era. The artwork, Ryan, we've got this cover. The photograph was taken by Elisa Katz, and it was outside the, the studio. Mm -hmm. The album design was done by Patrick Manning. This, as Joe says in the interview, was Kind of an attempt at a throwback to the Stones. An homage, for yep. sure. On the back, almost like comic book style, uh, you know, bubbles, or I guess, or panels, I guess you would call them. Panels, yep. Uh, we've got this notage from Bill Stevenson. He writes on the back, In 1978, the last completely changed my outlook on music. They were the single biggest influence on me and my band, The Descendants, during our formative period. In 1988, my band All and The Last ended up sharing the same rehearsal space. They asked me to produce their record. How could I say no? They're still my favorite band. And here's something really awesome, Ryan. Joe Nolte sent me the original note notage from Bill, the handwritten note that this came from. No way. So we're going to post that. For sure. Yeah. The My favorite thing about the packaging is those handwritten lyrics. By Joe. Lyrics on the yeah, I actually have that on my copy. This is one nice. of the very rare occasions where the insert is with the used record for some darn reason. On one of the other podcasts that he's on, there's a thing where he's talking about listening to Buzzcocks records with uh, Ron Reyes in the church. Yeah, and there's another band you could draw probably an influence from, uh, and he's talking about writing last lyrics all over the walls in the church and i actually found a photo that spot took that that will post uh of the lyrics for that song difference scrawled in kind of this 
handwriting style that you see here on the wall in the church. How about dead wax, Ryan? Not on mine. Yours? Nope. Yeah. We're out. All right. Cool. Thank you list, though. Maxine Nasworthy. Maxine gets a number of thank yous on the Chemical People releases to come from Dave Naz. Bill Stevenson, all, of course. Um, and then it mentions the Brewers of America. <laughs> nice. And then, in addition, Mike would like to express heartfelt thanks to those who withheld their support. We know where you live. I think maybe Maxime was uh, Dave's mom. Yep. Because they sh that's where they practiced, I think. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure... You know what? I should have checked this out before, but I'm pretty sure Maxine Nasworthy is the cover model of the last Chemical People album called Arpeggio Motorcade. I'm pretty sure she's on the cover of that. Hmm. Okay. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. Well, it's a long list of potentials for sure on this record, just like the last one, the Screaming Trees record. Lots of great tunes, but definitely some standouts still, though. I mean, we already spoke about Going Gone. Yeah, my favorites were So Quick to Say, Another Side, Dancing, Everywhere You Turn, Confession, but I, I kind of have to insist on putting Going Gone. Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah. All right. Ooh, hey, thanks to Jeff and Soraya for hooking us up with Joe, and thanks to Joe for being on the show. That's right. So cool. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, I hope you're not afraid of the number 13, because it's SST 190, the Dos Domin LP, Triskaidekaphobe. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.